Hi, I'm Janet O'Shea, author of Risk Failure Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training. I'm speaking with Susan Schwern, author of Smile at Strangers and Other Lessons in the Art of Living Fearlessly, and Kathy Chapati, author of No Pouting in the Dojo, Life Lessons Through Martial Arts. All of us are obviously martial artists, writers, and memoirists. So we're going to be talking about our process and our experience. It also happens to be that I, I am known as Jay and Susan is known as George. So we're going to refer to each other as such, but there aren't actually five of us in this conversation. <laughs> There's just three and that is probably plenty. Yeah, I think all um, of our so, pronouns are she, her, and hers. So I'm still Kathy. Yes. So. Yes. And Kathy is still Kathy. Kathy had the good sense to publish under the names that she's actually. <laughs> <referring> to. <laughs> so here we are. Um, one of the questions I wanted to engage was this idea of personal transformation through martial arts, because I think that's a truism, um, but it's also something that's taken for granted that martial arts can cause this personal transformation, but really um, it's not discussed how and why that happens in very much detail. So I was hoping we could begin by all three of us discussing what personal transformations we've experienced through martial arts, the transformations we've seen in other people, and how that comes across in our writing. Who should start? I think you can start, George. Okay, I'll start. Um, yeah, I think there's a really common narrative um, surrounding martial artists and how their art changes them. And it's a, it, it's, a, it's a sort of classic story of the young man who goes out into the woods and trains alone and then comes back and beats up a bunch of people. And I think everybody sort of understands, at least superficially, how that transformation happens by they gain all this self-discipline and they work very hard and they become very strong. And there's also some sort of magic moment where they become very zen-like and understand things about the universe. So that was not my process at all. <laughs> I was misled by television and the movies and um, much much of uh, the, the established legend. Um, and for me, the, the experience of transformation that happened with martial arts, what was most surprising about it, because I went into it initially in a Korean school, understanding it as being about discipline and hard work and training and having really good teachers and doing what your teacher told you. And, um, and that, that did sort of change me. I mean, like my body shape changed and stuff like that. But the school that I stuck with, where I really felt that I changed a lot as a person, the thing that I was not expecting was the extent to which that transformation had to do with very particular internal bodily experiences, learning how to feel calm. And that it's hard to even talk about that because it sounds so generic, but mm -hmm. just the really specific things like learning to breathe in a way that lowered your heart rate, you know, and, and not doing it because a teacher was telling me to do it, but really learning to feel what different emotions felt like in my body and uh, what adrenaline did to my body and a lot of really granular sort of somatic stuff. And that came out of the, the school that I was in because it was tapped into a feminist tradition in martial arts that I don't want to say those things are not native to martial arts. I, I think they are. And my friends who are social workers and martial artists say that they are definitely part of the, the whole system of martial arts being developed in order to help warriors process the trauma that they that's part of their job. But I think a lot of uh, male-oriented schools do not 
listen so much to those those pieces of what the martial arts have to offer and they they're more i guess in the sort of east west hard soft style we'd call them internal and external mm-hmm. but that's where i really was surprised by the kind of transformation that happened for me in my training i'm not i'm simply not the the person that i was when before i started training nowhere near it I uh, I have to admit, though, that part of that is uh, martial arts. Part of that is sobriety. Those two go hand in hand, and one without the other just makes Kathy a very unhappy person. And so, but the hard training, the discipline, that was all part of it. The transformation for me was the end of the ideal martial art way. Yeah, I grew up watching Kung Fu as a kid and Bruce Lee movies and there was this Hollywood theme that that went where the hero of the show went through these training montage you know and you see it's almost like a rocky you know a scene where you hear the music playing and you see him doing all this training and they're getting getting stronger and stronger and then there's this climactic uh, moment of truth that was not true for me. <laughs> and I always felt like, oh, man, I must be doing something wrong. But it's different when the transformation that I had was different than what I saw in Hollywood. It was no less impactful. And I, what happened for me was I, I discovered things about myself I didn't know. I um, discovered that I have some fears that I didn't realize where they came from. And just from the act of sparring or being pushed physically to the point where I thought I was about to die, that, you know, you really get to meet your dragons face to face. And that is probably the thing that changed me the most is seeing those things that I don't like about myself that come out when you're physically, mentally and spiritually stressed and possibly dehydrated (laughs) and you're you're really just being pushed by, it really makes you dig in deep. And then from that, uh, the, the transformation that I've witnessed as a teacher, well, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. So I think like both of you, my, the kind of transformation that I experienced was potent, but not obvious. And I think I, what you're saying really resonates for me that we have certain ideas about martial arts and transformation that, that do come from martial arts movies. And I love martial arts movies as much as the next fight geek, but I found that sort of narrative of weakness to strength or not being able to fight, to fighting, to knowing you don't have to fight didn't really sum up my experience because it wasn't really a narrative of going from fearful to being brave, but going from being rather cantankerous and perhaps a little too aggressive to learning how to manage aggression, but also how to understand what was underneath the aggression. And for me, like what you were saying, Kathy, is, um, you know, it's that raw, immediate encounter with another human being that happens in sparring that for me was really world-changing. And that taught me a lot about decision-making, and it taught me a lot about how to change a situation when I didn't like it. And I think for me, what was really interesting, like what you're talking about, George, with starting with one particular style, and 
it being about discipline and discipline not being the whole picture. You know, for me, I went looking for that transformation in traditional Kung Fu and I didn't find it. And then years later, I came back. Uh, I, well, I actually came, came into Wing Chun Kung Fu and studied that for a while. And then it was only when I came into Jeet Kune Do that I really started to tap into that sort of sense of problem solving. And it, it actually came through in sports like Western boxing, kickboxing and grappling. And that's where I found that potential for self-transformation. So it was kind of a reverse of the very orientalized, romanticized idea of going out to the wilderness. You know, for me, this was happening in these gym spaces where the mats stink of sweat and you have fluorescent lights and you're in old mm. auto body shops. <laughs> 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 so I guess that leads into another question, which is, I think we've all talked a little bit about spaces of practice in our books. So I was wondering if either of you might want to pick up on any reflections about the importance of particular spaces to martial arts training and the allegiance and affection that develops for a space. Any thoughts on that issue? Yeah, we had, you know, we had this um, sort of iconic school in in Austin for years Mm -hmm. um, that uh, gradually sort of decayed around us and we finally had to leave. And that was that was really hard because it was so bound up with, I mean, we had all met so many challenges there. Mm -hmm. Some of them actually caused by the venue itself because (laughs) there was no climate control and very little plumbing. But also too, you know, you just had memories and relationships that were very tuned into that space. I've said forever that the, we had this horrific swamp cooler that we didn't have an air conditioner, but somebody gave us, or we bought like, at a garage sale, this huge swamp cooler, like they used for football teams outside. It's this enormous black box with a fan in it and a, and a drip tray underneath. And you connect it to a hose and it drips water down and it blows mildly cooler air over whoever's standing about three feet away from it. And, and we had that thing running nine months out of the year. Cause this is Austin, Texas. And, uh, it had this really uh, I mean, I will hear the hum of that because we meditated to that and we sparred to that and we did everything. That I am sure that when I die that I go <laughs> and I go into the great Tao, that is what I'm going to hear. It is like it's it's part of my neural network, that sound of that swamp cooler. I don't even remember. I think we gave it to a women's rugby team when we left that space. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, so that's, you know, these are things that become part of your part of your body memory and that's why I think they are they're kind of hard to give up but one of the traditions in in martial arts many martial arts and ours too is to go to go train in other places you have a training space it is very important it is in some ways you know almost semi-sacred you take very good care of it but you are supposed to go out and train in lots of other environments and so that dictate was helpful when we did have to leave it's never quite the same, but you, you do have the benefit of being able to lord it over all the new students and say, well, you should have been there when we were in the old dojo. <laughs> it was 105 at the start of class. or It was 30 degrees at the beginning, whatever. And you drone on and on like the old people do. So that's that's also a tradition, I guess. It's the, the old black belts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I found my school, the... It was just a building. Uh, it was a cement block building. 
It was hot in the summer. It was freezing cold in the winter. It was what I could afford. I decided to get, for myself, I decided to get a $10,000 startup loan. And I was not going to incur any more debt than that. So I had to make that work. I mean, we made the repairs or the renovations that we could to this old old building. And uh, and we threw down some mats. We put up some mirrors. Uh, and uh, we trained. We started training. Uh, there was no air conditioning. We had fans uh, that were in the the windows. And we had big a big box fan too, a drum fan, which you cannot hear anyone talk or give any kind of instructions. It was awful, but oh my God, I sweat so much and I have such great memories about being in Texas and teaching not only myself, teaching myself how to hydrate <laughs> and how to eat properly and uh, consume electrolytes properly in the proper amount and teaching that to a new, new generation of, of kids because they're training with me too. That was, my, my students still will contact me today and they'll say, oh, I love that old dojo, <laughs> you know? And, uh, oh, I miss that place. And they would complain about it being so freezing <laughs> that their toes were gonna fall off. And <laughs> And, um, they but they miss it. And, you know, it, extremes, um, I, I've always had a fondness for, for places that were not comfortable. And I think that one of the reasons that I've stuck with martial arts is the fact that it makes me uncomfortable. It pushes me. I don't like it, but it's good for me. And I know that much. And so I love what I do. And I, and so I stick with it for that reason. But that plays a part in the transformation too. Just being in a place that's comfortably uncomfortable, um, and learning to uh, to accept the fact that I'm in discomfort. It's not going to last forever, but so let's just move on. Mm -hmm. And that has been very beneficial outside the dojo, because there's a lot of times in life where I'm uncomfortable. I don't like it. I can see that it's not going to last forever, so I think I'm just going to stick it through. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but it starts with one place, and you have to leave. Like George said, you do have to leave the dojo at some point, whether it's to go home to your family, apply what you learned in those four walls to the outside world, or whether it's training in a, a uh, you're a guest in another person's school. The idea of being on being comfortable being uncomfortable yeah and Jay you know Kathy and I both had the experience that I'm not sure you've had which is that I was I did have done the bulk of my training at a what was originally a women's only school and is now still women run and women led uh, and Kathy had her own school and and I but I started in a system that was you know more male dominated and mm -hmm. was the space felt more like a male space so I'm I'm curious, you know, that's and I think that's pretty much your your daily training experience is in more of a male gendered space, would you say? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Although it's interesting because I'm, you know, I think I was more conscious of that when I started my martial arts training. I was more conscious of the gender imbalance. 
And I think there's something super interesting that happens in martial arts around gender, which is not to sort of universalize anything, but I think these sort of interpersonal encounters that are so intense and immediate and so specific that concerns of gender, once you're actually working with somebody, concerns of gender start to slip away, just like other kinds of difference. And in fact, when I first started training, it was not just mostly men, it was actually mostly young men because I started training at UCLA. So I was sort of on the mat with these people who are like decades younger than me. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they were all undergraduate majors in the sciences. And so it was this really extraordinary thing where I was like, wow, these people are really, their life experience is very different from mine in so many ways. And yet we've developed such an extraordinary sense of community through our training. And then our actual encounters with each other, it was fascinating to me how, you know, particularly, again, I keep coming back to sparring because that's really, to me, where so many of the insights really get generated, where when I'm sparring with somebody, they start to become sort of reducible to their problem solving and their skill set. And to me, that's really interesting. And then, of course, there is that thing of going into another training space where all of a sudden gender starts to become important again because people are kind of appraising each other and sizing each other up and then you get into these sort of things where oh I'm the only woman in the space so somebody you know some guy who maybe doesn't necessarily know what he's doing feels like he has to correct me all the time or that kind of thing and then you start to see those power issues start to play out so it's an interesting and complicated and nuanced sort of thing that happens around gender I think and it has been really interesting to me, for example, doing the National Women's Martial Arts Federation training because of it being women and non-binary people. And, you know, not in the ways that I think anyone would expect because it's not, you know, because there's so much diversity of physique and training and mentality among people who identify as women. But it is interesting to have that have the demographics shift and then also to have the super Saturday event where men from the community come in. And again, it's just sort of interesting because instead of it being 90% men and 10% women, it's kind of, it's the other way around. And right. so it's a kind of, you know, it's just a very interesting dynamic that gets established and it's the women who are doing the instructing. So the whole kind of hierarchy is different. So I think that uh, these are wonderful, wonderfully transitioning. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but each, each topic we talk about seems to flow automatically into the next thing that I wanted to talk about. So that's really quite delightful. The next thing I was thinking about is how all three of our books are rooted in memoir to a greater or lesser degree. I think mine uses memoir, but then moves into kind of societal reflections. George, I think yours is a delves quite deeply into memoir and Kathy, I sort of see yours as kind of in between. But even given that, I think we are all very invested in memoir. We all use memoir. But for each of us, memoir also opens out to something else or some things else. So I was wondering if either both of you would care to comment on your use of memoir did it automatically open out to other issues? Was that something you thought about consciously when you were writing? I had been writing a column for McSweeney's, which was not especially memoirish, but it was sort of first-person personal experience commentary. 
And that was what attracted editorial interest in me writing a book. And so I didn't set out to write a memoir, but that was sort of what came out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, and I, and I was surprised by that. What seemed to happen was that I was writing about such a wide range of things, but all things that were very important to me and all very personal to me. And the only way to sort of make a story out of them was to write a memoir and talk about a personal track of growth, because otherwise I was writing more columns or essays, and that's not really a collection of essays was not what I wanted to do or what anybody was interested in publishing. So um, so to kind of do a, a through line for a book, the memoir was a way to sort of keep people, keep people interested and keep them understanding the sort of the chronology of why I was pinging around from all of these different topics from, you know, abduction and assault to emails that we get to the way the way we react to medical diagnoses to the way we think about our children. And all of those things made sense to me and all seemed to be connected to these sort of keynotes in my own experience. And so to really make them resonate with people, I had to let them into that sort of personal chronological journey and and hear let them hear that keynote being struck over and over again as it as it's slowly I'm a very slow learner <laughs> as over time I started to see how these same issues were coming up they they were needing to be addressed in the same way they had some similar solutions that the problems that I was grappling with had had similar causes or the same causes and um, and how my training and other experiences were sort of fitting me to uh, to deal with those things. So that's sort of the way it, it shook out for me. I wonder if I were not female, if I would have been encouraged so much to write memoir. I get the sense that that's sort of an expected genre for women. It's considered fairly saleable. You know, a publisher knows what to do with a memoir. And I will say that when all of this first started, I was put in touch with three different agents who were men who looked at my sample chapters and said, I, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> and, then, yeah, yeah. and then I was put in touch with um, Brittany Bloom, my agent now, and, and she was like, yep, this is great. We'll go with this. So it was an oddly gendered thing for a story that to me felt, well, I mean, it was gendered in a way that I was pushing back against gender constraints. But I wonder if I were a guy writing about the same stuff, if memoir would be expected, if it would be encouraged. I don't know. We certainly have plenty of memoirs from male martial artists, too. It could be that that would, that would be perceived as a logical fit, too. That's fascinating, George. That is really, that's really cool. I, I've been also a fan of George McSweeney's uh, articles I found her writing to be hilarious uh, and and really just pointed and sharp and sharp-witted and <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> a ping to the face. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I know I started uh, my book from blogging. This was actually not the first book that I was that I was working on. I was working on the memoir that's about that I'm about to release in about another month. But I had been blogging about my students because my wife was really tired of me just coming home every night saying, <laughs> let me tell you what happened to Calvin today. Let me tell you what Chris did today. And she's like, you need to write this stuff down. You know, and then another friend says, you know, have you ever thought about starting a blog? 
And I loved it. I started blogging and I was, uh, you know, I was blogging about my students' little victories. And I'm, as a former journalist, I love writing about other people. And so that was a very good fit for me, blogging about other people. I got to tell their stories. And one of the things that I don't think that's out there on the on the bookshelves are experiences of the children, their stories. It's not out there. Uh, so my original No Pouting in the Dojang blog just started to uh, develop and there was a point where I was, I had to put the book that I was currently writing to the side and, and focus on that. And I just really felt very comfortable telling other people's stories. It came together well. I enjoyed it. I went with a small publisher and then through a series of, of business mishaps, uh, ended up having to self-publish a second edition, but it, Memoir was something that felt very good to me, but it was also memoir from telling other people's stories was also very important. And those kids, they're just fantastic. They're, they're really cool. And they, I learned a lot from the lessons they learned. They learned a lot from the lessons I learned and it was really a very yin-yang experience of uh, sharing both of our growths through a book. Um, so I'm, I love memoir writing. I've just recently gotten into flash fiction, which mm. I'm finding fun, but I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, memoir. Would you uh, say that the book that you just finished, which is less focused on others, was it harder to write or oh, was it less fun to write? Oh, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it was awful. It's the yeah. dirty secret of writing yes, memoir. Yes. Like I always tell people, there's three things you don't want to see made. It's legislation and sausage and memoir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It uh, it was hard putting it aside when I was ninety percent done. To when my gut started saying to go with no pouting, mm-hmm. and but yeah, to to really do uh, to do it justice, writing about myself was much much harder. You tend to go deeper, mm-hmm. which is what I saw in your book, George, and you're vulnerable. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have I like to look good, just like everybody else. <laughs> I am imperfect. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'd like you to think I do. And, and I, you know, it's it's very humbling to to say you don't, and it's also freeing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And Jay, your your book's yeah. coming out from an academic press. So was the memoir was that ever like did did anybody consider that odd or did it feel like uh, you know were there people who thought that that the book that you're writing shouldn't have memory did you have to ever justify it um i did at a certain point in the process so i was lucky to have an editor who i am lucky to have an editor who is incredibly supportive of the idea and of accessible writing so he's the acquisitions editor for dance theater and performance studies with Oxford University Press. But when I floated this idea and I said, look, I see this as a crossover academic trade book. I see it as a work of public scholarship. He said, absolutely, send something my way. And 
he was actually really delighted by a lot of the first person. Later on, I it got a little sticky where, you know, it being an academic book, there's readers' reviews and most of them were very positive, but you know, with the proposal, one person was was a bit cranky about the whole idea of using memoir in in this kind of using memoir to make a larger statement about society and about politics. And so I did sort of have to defend it at that point. Again, I I can't say I can't speak highly enough of my editor, and I'm not just saying that because he's my editor. He was actually amazing about it, and the board at Oxford was wonderful about it. And they said, yeah, just, you know, put something together and respond. And it's, it's all good. But I did think it was interesting that somebody and, you know, it's fortunate with the with the readers reviews because it's anonymous and it should be, you know, because I think we don't want to be having those conversations like face to face with people sometimes. But I thought it was interesting because there was this idea that like, oh, if you're writing memoir, it's, it's all about you. It's very solipsistic. And what I tried to do in my book was Really, it's a bit like what you were talking about, Kathy, about it's a memoir, but it's it's about other people. And I'm, I recall seeing this documentary film once, and I now can't remember the name of the film, but the filmmaker was saying she wrote a film that was very, very first person or wrote and directed a film that was very first person in many ways. And she said somebody watched it and said, oh, most people make films about other people, but it's really about them. You made a film about yourself, but it's really about other people. And for me, that was really paradigmatic. And like, that was what I was aiming for with using memoir that it's like, okay, I'm starting with my own experience, because really, that's the only thing I can credibly speak for with absolute certainty that like, I know that I experienced this, and I did this, and I felt this. And then from there, I can kind of interpret out, you know, and for me, it was about interpreting outward to think about things like societal attitudes towards competition, cooperation, vulnerability, failure, those sorts of ideas. But it was kind of, you know, it's interesting. It was a little bit of a reverse move from what you were talking about, George, where um, I did set out to write a memoir. And then I realized it wasn't a memoir, that it, it, that it was a sort of outside in kind of thing, inside out kind of thing where I started with my own experience, but then I opened it outward to to think about, you know, much larger conversations about how we think about accomplishment and what we think fair play is in this very polarized political climate. And I partially made that decision because I felt like there was so much going on in the world around me that I needed to speak about it. And then partially because I was like, you know, in terms of memoir, there's not that much that's terribly interesting about me and martial arts. Like I'm just a person who got super into training in martial arts at a point in my life when maybe other people are starting to put aside rough physical preoccupations. Mm. Yeah. So I had one more question, but I see we're pretty much at a half an hour and I'm reluctant to bring this conversation to a close because I'm having so much fun. (laughs) 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 This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I feel like we could talk for another half hour, but, but I think we're also at a good place in terms of I've, found out a lot more about both of your projects and I already enjoyed both your books so much. So I think at this point, I shall perhaps conclude by saying thank you very much for this conversation and thank yeah, you for sharing for thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much for having us. And, and Jay, plug your book. When is it coming out? Okay, so my book is coming out. Uh, the publication date is November 1st. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's right around the corner. And then both of your books are out 
already. Yeah, and Kathy's um, next one is coming out. I'm going to say November 1st. <laughs> All right. Oh, great. Okay. Oh, wonderful. If we were in the same city, we, we, we could do a book party. Um, and what is the name of that? What's the title of the second book? Searching for Grasshopper, a martial artist's quest for peace. Great. And the McSweeney's column we keep making reference to is called Bitch Slap. Bitch Slap. A, a, a column about women and fighting. Yeah. Right. Bitch Slap, and a column about women and fighting. I'm working mainly on, I've been doing a lot of, uh, most of my writing and other work lately has been about uh, de-escalation and violence prevention training related to political activity. So I don't have any uh, nonfiction in the works other than that sort of trying to keep people from being killed stuff. But I have been working on some fiction. I don't have anything ready yet, but trying to get a, a draft of something done by the end of November. And I just want to say it was so cool to have three women who are all martial artists and writers talking about their books at this, like how many of us are there out there, you know, exactly. to be gathered in one place is, right. is mighty nice. It's right a on. select company. And two people right. at the same city Yep. who not at the same time trained at the same school. Yeah. Kathy trained nice. at Sunrise for a while too. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, it was a small That's town. <laughs> <laughs> right. You trained everywhere. You went through every gone everywhere. <laughs> Oh, this was fun. Yes, this was really great. So yes, exactly. I know there aren't that many women martial artists, writers out there, um, let alone ones who've published books relatively recently. So I'm really glad to be in this wonderful company and I really appreciate the conversation. 